Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome back to the Mongol Empire podcast. This is episode 3.10, and the final one in the rise of Temujin. You may have noticed that this is a longer episode than the regular series has been. That's because there wasn't quite enough material to fill two separate episodes, so I've stuck it all into this one. So buckle in, and get ready to finally meet Chinggis Khan. Last time out, we saw the end of both the Karayid tribe and Ong Khan as Temujin consolidated his position as the dominant power in eastern and central Mongolia. At the end of the episode, we were into 1204, and the Mongol leader was just preparing to face the threat posed by the half of the Neyman tribe led by Taiyang Khan. He had accepted the advice of Belgutai and was gearing his army for a preemptive strike. So we rejoin him at the Mongol camp on the Kalka River. The first thing Temujin did was to reorganize his army. Quote, he divided the men into thousands to form troops of a thousand, and appointed for each troop a captain of thousands, captains of hundreds, and captains of tens. He appointed six men to be stewards of the army, giving them the title of Cherby, including Dodai and Ogali Cherby among them. Then, having divided the army to form troops of a thousand, he chose from among them his personal guard, the eighty night guards and seventy day guards. For this, he inspected the sons and relations of all his captains, and the sons and relations of all common soldiers, and he selected those with the greatest ability, those most fit and pleasant to look at. End quote. The battle against the Tatar gave us an insight into the discipline Temujin wanted to instil into his army, but this passage is the first time we see any kind of command structure. I'll be doing a more detailed look at the army when individual positions are formally awarded at the Kuril of 1206, but at this stage we can see that it is clearly broken down into regiments of a thousand, squadrons of a hundred, and troops of ten men. Temujin has his own elite household division in the form of the day and night guards, which in battle would be positioned in front of the Khan. The ranks of this bodyguard were to be filled by the best warriors in the tribe, no matter their social standing, with the only restriction on being how they looked. Which I suppose is fair. If you had to look at the same faces all day every day, then maybe you too would want something pleasant to look at. This reorganisation, and I would guess some training in the form of hunting, went on until early summer, at which point Temujin had his nine-tailed standard sprinkled with libations of mare's milk and raised. Heaven was alerted, and the Mongols were now on the warpath. Despite being rejected by the Ongud, Taiyang had managed to scrape together yet another coalition of tribes to fight against Temujin, although at this point the selection was getting a little bit thin. Togtogebeki had brought the Merkit, and of course Jamuga was there with the Jadaran and a final alliance of Mongol clans, which included the Taichigud. This alliance also included the two most senior Mongol clans, the Katakin and Seljigut, who were probably led by Ultan and Kuchar. I say probably because, as far as I can tell, they drop off the face of the earth at this point. We last saw them running to Taiyang after stabbing Ong Khan in the back. The next time they are referenced is after the tribes have been united, when Temujin states that the pair had been killed. Also joining with the Neyman were the Oyarat tribe, and the last remnants of those tribes who had already been defeated by Temujin. Taiyang's coalition assembled on the Altai River, and waited for the Mongols to appear. 
On this occasion, there would be no surprises. Both armies sent out scouts. Temujins were led by Jebe and Kublai, and the first encounter between the two forces took place on the donkey back steppe. Temujin ordered the scouts to release a horse, which could be captured by their Neyman counterparts. The horse looked ragged. Its ribs were clearly visible. Perhaps Taiyang would believe that Temujin's army was running on fumes, and could be lured into an immediate attack. However, it was Temujin's own army that was immediately tested. Scouts had brought news that the Neyman had far greater numbers of men, horses and supplies. Enthusiasm for the campaign wavered, and there seems to have been some hesitation, possibly even by the Khan. This was a critical moment. Victory would give Temujin almost complete control over the Mongolian steppe. But his newly reformed army was untested, and uncertain of their ability. So he convened another council to reaffirm the commitment to war, and Dodai Cherby, one of the six army stewards, spoke up to provide the necessary words of comfort. Quote, It's true they outnumber us, but we knew that before we came to attack them. We've exhausted ourselves from the march, so let's stop here for now. This steppe is rich, and our horses can graze a while. Let's pitch our tents and spread out across the whole steppe. Let every man among us light five fires each and the sight of these fires will terrify them. It's said that the Neyman are strong in numbers, but their Khan is a weak man who's never been out of his tent. When our horses are strong, we will charge at their sentries, driving them back, forcing their army to unite in one mass. If we attack that way, we'll have a good chance of beating them. End quote. Temujin ordered his army to follow this plan, and campfires started lighting up across the donkeyback steppe. As reports of the large size of the Mongol army started filtering back to Taiyang, he started preparations to counter this unexpected threat. He may have been a weak leader, but he wasn't an idiot. He sent a message to his son Guchlug containing his proposed strategy. Quote, they have more fires than stars in the sky. This means the Mongol are numerous. If we attack them now, it'll be hard to beat them. If we attack them now, they won't even flinch. These Mongol are the kind of warriors who won't retreat, even though an arrow has pierced through their cheek, even when black blood flows from their wounds. Would attacking them now be a wise thing to do? Now it's said that the Mongol horses are lean. If we were to take our people back over the Altai, retreating in order this way, reforming our army on the other side of the passes, marching back and enticing them to follow us, appearing to retreat from them, but still fighting small skirmishes along the way, until we reach the foot of the Altai. Right now, our geldings are too fat for battle. Such a march would pull up their bellies and make them ready for war. The Mongol horses will be exhausted by then, and will throw our army back in their faces. End quote. Taiyang was proposing to carry out one of the classic nomad stratagems, the feigned retreat. The premise of this tactic was to initially engage the enemy before retreating in apparent disorder. The enemy would follow, and be led on a merry journey for several days, wearing themselves out, trying to chase you down. You would then find an advantageous location, turn on the exhausted enemy, and slaughter them, chasing them down as they broke and tried to return to safety. It was a tactic used throughout history by steppe tribes, and the Mongol conquests would be no different. They employed it with great success in all theatres of war they entered, 
China, Russia, Poland, Syria. It was tried and tested, and it was particularly effective against an enemy who had little experience fighting a mobile steppe army. Taiyang wanted to use it here against Temujin, and it really made sense to do so. If intel about the Mongol army was unreliable, then why not improve the odds of success by fighting on your own terms? The captured emaciated horse suggested that Temujin would be unable to sustain a long campaign against them, and if he was desperate to force a confrontation, why not try to lure him into the Altai Mountains, a place that the Neyman knew intimately? If Temujin didn't pursue Taiyang, then no harm was done, and the Neyman could use the time to better prepare for the inevitable battle. But Taiyang was a weak leader. This is one of those what-if moments. With a stronger leader, this strategy would probably have been adopted. Taiyang's reputation, though, was a shadow of the great Khans of the period, your Togarils, your Inanch Bilga Khans. Taiyang's commanders scorned him, and he was openly disrespected by his family. And so, Guchlug gave a sneering response to his father's message. Quote, Ah, Taiyang, he talks like a woman. His heart is so weak. Where would these numerous Mongols have come from? Most of the Mongol are with Jamuga, and he's here with us. Taiyang's timid little heart, which has gone no further from his tent than where a pregnant woman pisses, which has gone no further towards the pasture than a calf tied to the wheels of a cart. This woman's heart has already failed him. That's why he sent me this cowardly plan. End quote. When Taiyang's general, Kori Subachi, heard the plan, he too spoke up against it and berated the Khan. Quote, Your father, Inanchabilga Khan, never turned his back or showed the rear of his horse to a man he knew to be his equal in war. Yet now, before we even get started, your heart gives out. If we had known your heart was so weak, We'd brought out your mother, Gerbesu, even though she's a woman, and had her command the army. Why must our people suffer for the fact that your father grew old? The discipline in our army is lax. It's the time of the Mongol. I can see it. Destiny's with them now, not us. Late-born Taiyang. As a leader, you're useless. End quote. In much the same way Togaril had reluctantly been forced into action against Temujin, Taiyang now found himself with little choice but to carry out the wishes of his advisers. The coalition gathered together, and he led the army down the Tamir River Valley and crossed the Orkon River, at which point it was picked up by Temujin's sentries. One of the things I really love when I'm doing additional research for the podcast is to discover obscure bits of information that help illuminate the subject. For this battle, I have spent far too much time staring at various maps trying to work out where it all took place. The confluence of the Tamir and Orkon rivers can be found about 350 kilometers from Ulaanbaatar and is now part of the Orkon Valley Natural and Historical Reserve. As the name suggests, the region is of historical significance, containing burial grounds of the Xiongnu and stelae commemorating Turkic leaders. It contains the Uyghur capital of Karabalgasan, or Ordu Balik, and is the location of the future Mongol capital of Karakorum, built during the reign of Ogadai. 
It seems somewhat appropriate then that such an important battle would take place in the region. On mongolempirepodcast.com, I have shared a topographic map which shows a close-up of the region. It comes from silkroadfoundation.org and relates to archaeological excavations carried out in 2005. The website itself is very dated and looks unmaintained, but it does contain some useful resources and an extensive bibliography if you want to read up more about the area. Of course, links to everything can be found on mongolempirepodcast.com. What this map allows us to do, though, is roughly follow the movement of the Neyman as they approach the Mongol army, and allows us to corroborate the events as told by Rashid al-Din and the secret history. Rashid al-Din states that the Neyman were camped in the Hangai Mountains, whose eastern flank falls into the Orkhon Valley, and from which the Tamir River emerges from. It seems that the initial confrontation between the two sets of scouts took place in these mountains, whilst the main body of Temujin's army camped on the hills on the eastern side of the valley. Taiyang's move into the Orkhon Valley would probably have followed the easiest route to move a large body of troops, which in this case was via the Tamir River Valley. As we've seen, the Neyman came out of the Tamir Valley and crossed the Orkhon, meaning that they likely swung south, as the Orkhon Valley widens in that direction. The secret history states that the army passed on the eastern side of Mount Naku, which must be a peak on the edge of the Hangai mountain range. Soon after this, their movements were picked up by Temujin's scouts. What we don't really get from the text, but is revealed by the maps, are the distances involved in these manoeuvres. The Orkhon Valley is roughly 70 kilometers long, whilst the Hangai mountain range stretches northwest from it for about 800 kilometers. If Temujin had based his army on the western side of the Orkhon Valley, then his scouts would have been operating over a large area, a huge area. These armies were not sitting on top of each other, and it explains how Temujin could afford to give his army a few extra days rest. With the Neyman on the move, it meant that battle would now be fought on Mongol terms, and I can only assume that Temujin had chosen his position to get some kind of advantage. The question, though, was whether it would be enough of an advantage against his numerically superior opposition. With the Neyman in sight, Temujin rallied his men and gave perhaps the least inspiring war speech I've come across. Quote, This will be a great battle. This will be a decisive one. We may lose everything, or we may lose only a few. We must set out against the Neyman in strictest order. Taking Karagana formation, we'll march in close rank like a thorny shrub. Then advancing in lake array, we'll spread out like the waters filling the steppe. Finally charging together at the centre of their army, we'll drive through their lines like a chisel through wood. End quote. And end of speech. Braveheart, this was not. Whilst his commanders take back the messages of discipline and realism to the regular troops, we'll take a bit more of a closer look at the tactics being employed. Approaching the Neyman front line, the Mongol army would be in Karagana formation. This meant that it would present a narrow front to the enemy, reducing the effectiveness of incoming arrows. Once the battle had started, the army would then fan out in lake formation, a tactic which aimed for the encompassment of the enemy and disruption of their lines with arrow fire. With the enemy army in disarray, the Mongol vanguard would then form up and charge. 
With the strategy defined, Temujin appointed two men he trusted the most to lead the army, perhaps recognising that his warriors weren't entirely sure about their chances. Kassar was appointed commander of the centre, and Temuj, or Prince Ochigin, to give him his official title, was appointed commander of the reserve, whilst Temujin himself would lead by example and command the forward troops. His army was ready, and they advanced on the Neyman alliance. As you might expect, the battle was won by the Mongol army, but the role Jamruga played may have had quite an impact. Seeing that Temujin was arranging his army in an unexpected way, Jamuga seems to have lost the will to fight. He turned to his Jadaran followers and said, quote, The method and deployment of the Anda, meaning Genghis Khan, are different. The Neyman will not leave the skin of a calf or goat for anyone. Turning around, he departed and left the battlefield. End quote. This passage, found in Rashid al-Din, is a little bit cryptic but I've taken it to mean that he had little faith in the alliance, perhaps realising that the Neyman had little interest in empowering Jamuga. Rachnevsky takes this a little bit further, and suggests that the cultural differences between the Mongol and Neyman meant that there was little common ground between the two groups. Jamuga may have been under pressure from his own people to disassociate himself from Taiyang, and viewing Temujin's superior battle plan may have convinced him that this was not a battle worth being involved in. This was just one more disadvantage then for the Neyman. The battle itself is actually given very little coverage by Rashid. He simply states that it was a pitched battle, and that by sundown, Taiyang Khan's army was broken and routed. The Mongols overpowered the alliance and forced them back across the Orkhon onto the eastern slopes of the Hangai Mountains, where both sources pick up the end of the battle. In the Secret History's version of events, Jamuga doesn't desert. Instead, he morphs into a spirit-like apparition who taunts and amplifies Taiyang's fears. This is a long passage that I'm about to read to you, but it also contains some of the most vibrant imagery in the secret history, so I think it's worth hearing in full. Quote, Our forward troops drove the Neyman sentries back from Chakirmagud. Their forces retreated from us, reforming before Mount Naku, on the skirts of the mountains there. Our forward troops drove them back, herding them together into a great mass before Mount Naku. Taiyang Khan saw the Mongol driving his soldiers before them, and he turned to Jamuga, who had gathered his army and joined with the Neyman. And Taiyang asked Jamuga, What are these people who charge at us, like wolves pursuing so many sheep, chasing the sheep right into the flock? And Jamuga replied, my friend, and Temujin, has fed four dogs with human flesh, then held them back with iron chains. These are the people who charge at us, pursuing our soldiers. These four dogs have helmets of copper, snouts like awls, hearts of iron, whips sharp as swords. These four dogs feed on the dew and ride on the winds. These four, when they fight an enemy, feed on his flesh. These four take human flesh as their share of the spoils. Now he's cast off their chains and set them on us. He's let them loose, and they charge at us, mad with joy, their hungry mouths foaming. And when he asked, These four dogs, who are they? Jamuga replied, 
These four are Jebe and Kublai, Jelme and Subatai. Let's move away from these creatures, Tayang Khan said. And riding back, he halted where the steppe meets the mountains. From here, he looked back and saw new soldiers close behind the first ones, riders making their horses leap and gallop in circles, closing in behind them. And Tayang Khan asked Jamuga, Who are these people? How can they ride in circles around our soldiers, leaping like foals let loose at morning's play? Like foals full of milk from their mother's teats, playing merrily in the pasture. And Jamuga replied, These are the Urugud and Mankud clans, who charge into the lance-bearers, then strip the cloves from their corpses. They drive the swordsmen before them, and cut them down from their horses, stripping off their cloves and possessions as part of the spoils. That must be who you see, leaping and galloping into battle now. And Taiyang spoke again, saying, Let's move away from these creatures. And he rode further back, now ascending the mountainside. Looking down, he turned to Jamuga and asked, Who are these troops, cutting like a sword through the ranks, crying like falcons who must have their food, swooping towards us? Jamuga replied, These are Temujin's troops, and a Temujin is coming. He's so covered in armour, and all beaten from copper couldn't find a space to pierce it. A needle hammered from iron couldn't slip between its plates. Temujin swoops down on us like a falcon hungry for food. The Nay man was saying that when they saw the Mongol, they'd devour them. There wouldn't even be a scrap of goat hair left behind. Now look at them. Hearing these words, Tayang Khan spoke, saying, These are terrible men, frightening men. Let's ride further up the mountain and stand there. And he rode further up Mount Naku. Again, Tayang turned to Jamuga and asked, and who's this? Who charges behind Temujin? And Jamuga replied, Mother Hoglan weaned one of her sons with human flesh. He's as tall as three men, can make a meal of a three-year-old cow, and wears a breastplate that's three layers thick. He rides out on a cart drawn by three bulls. If he were to swallow a soldier and all his weapons, it wouldn't even fill up his mouth. Swallowing whole men doesn't satisfy his hunger. If he's angry, and draws back his bow to shoot a fork-tipped arrow, it skewers all the soldiers who come out to fight him, even though they're at the far side of the steppe. If he draws on his bow and shoots with all his strength, he'll hit a man 900 yards away. If he draws on his bow no stronger than other men do, he'll hit a man at 500 yards. There's no one who can match him in battle. He's called Kassar, and he's fierce as a python. That's who's charging at us now. Then Tayang Khan spoke out, saying, If that's so, then let's head for the heights of the mountain. And ascending the mountain further, he looked back at the battle. Then turning to Jamuga, he asked, Who's this now behind Kassar? Jamuga replied, This is Odchigin, Mother Hogalun's youngest son. He's said to be the lazy one, the first one to sleep, the last one to rise. But even he doesn't stay behind. Even he comes charging at us in battle. Tayang Khan spoke, saying, If that's so, then let's ride for the top of the mountain. After he had said all this to Tayang Khan, Jamuga deserted the Nayman and escaped from the battle alone. End quote. 
The secret history obviously contains elements of the reality of the battle. The desertion of Jamuga, the order of the Battle of the Mongol Army, and the retreat of Tayang Khan. But beyond that, the passage portrays an almost mythological version of the Mongol leaders and events. As the intensity of the battle eased, Tayang Khan was found lying on the mountainside, awake but unresponsive. Deep cuts across his body indicate that he was probably in a state of shock, but he was certainly dying. His commanders attempted to rouse him and draw him back into battle, but nothing they said to him elicited a response. Instead of hanging around to witness Taiyang's death, the commanders decided it would be more honourable to remount, group up what troops they could find, and carry out one last charge in the eyeline of their Khan, allowing him to see how dedicated they were to him. It was with great regret Temujin had all of these men slaughtered, as they refused to surrender. By the time the fighting had properly finished, it was night. The darkness was pierced by the screams of Neyman warriors, who in their desperation to escape the battlefield, fell to their death from the mountainous terrain. And as dawn broke, it revealed that Temujin had won a complete victory. Taiyang Khan and his generals were dead. The Neyman tribesmen who hadn't escaped in the dark would soon join him. The ranks of Temujin's army were swelled by the Mongol clans who surrendered to him. The Taichigud finally realised they could no longer oppose him. And more surprising was the submission of the Jadaran, which meant that Jamuga was also no longer a threat. He was simply a man on the run with few followers. With Ultan and Kuchar also probably dead, either on the battlefield or executed later, Temujin was now the most senior Borjigin leader and the undisputed ruler of all the Mongol people. But he could not rest yet. Taiyang's son, Guchlug, managed to escape to join up with the rest of the Neyman in the west, whilst the Merkit fled north. The war had to continue. The battle in the Yorkon Valley took place in the autumn of 1204, but instead of directly going after his enemies, it seems that Temujin allowed his army a short rest. It had been another tough year, particularly for the Mongol horses, who had been pushed to their limit and this respite would allow them to recover at least a little bit. And Temujin and his commanders could use the time to work out their next steps. Of the two potential targets, going after Toktogebeki made the most sense. The Merkit were now isolated in the north, with all of the steps south of Lake Baikal in the hands of Temujin's Mongols. And despite repeated defeats, the Merkit continued to be an irritation to Temujin, more importantly, he still had unfinished business with Togtogebeki and his sons. As for the Neyman, Buyuruk Khan had been quiet since his crushing defeat at the hands of Temujin and Ong Khan back in 1202, so it seems likely that his tribe had still not recovered, and right now Buyuruk was happy to keep his head down, perhaps hoping that whatever was going on in the east would just kind of blow past him. Gutschlug's appearance on the Irtish River changed nothing. And in fact, Buryuk seems to have offered his nephew very little in the way of support. So as winter arrived, Temujin mobilised his army and went to subjugate, or if necessary, annihilate the Merkit. The unfinished business Temujin had with Togtogebeki dates back to the early days of his leadership, when he had few followers and had just become a vassal of Togrul. If you recall, three sons of Togtogebeki surprised Temujin one morning, chased him round Burkhan Kuldun, and took Bort as a prize. 
She remained captive with them for at least a few months, in which time she was given to Chilga as a wife and likely became pregnant with Jockey. I say likely, the sources are somewhat coy in Jockey's early history. But the fact that Ogadai was chosen as successor to Chinggis instead of his older brother suggests that Temujin always maintained some doubt over Jockey's paternity. Anyhow, despite defeating the market on numerous occasions, Togtogebeki himself, probably an old man at this point, seems to have lived a charmed life as he escaped from Temujin's grasp time and time again. This time though, the Merkit were alone with nowhere left to hide, and revenge could finally be had. The campaign against the Merkit was extremely brief, and takes up no more than a couple of sentences in all sources. Temujin defeated and seized four clans, and some others willingly submitted to him. However, that wily rascal Togtogebeki once more eluded capture, and he, his sons, and a few followers left with them fled west to join Guchlug. Temujin was initially happy to allow the Merkit clans to continue existing as unified groups within his tribe, or nation I guess we should be calling it at this point. But a few of the clans spoiled it for the rest of them by rebelling against Temujin's rule, and shutting themselves in forts. The insurgency was a minor inconvenience to the Mongol Khan, who really, really just wanted to kill Togtogebeki. So for the first time, he divided the army to deal with the problem. Command of the right wing of the army was given to Borogul and Chimbai, a son of Sorkan Shira, and the pair would spend the next year or so putting down the revolt. When this had been achieved, the Merkit people were split between the rest of Temujin's followers, and the name Merkit was gone from the steppe. In the meantime, Temujin took the rest of his army to the foothills of the Altai Mountains, and there it would stay for the rest of winter, resting unchallenged deep in Neymar territory. There was no rush to finish his conquests. Guchlug and Togtogebeki really did have nowhere else to run to. With the arrival of spring, the army was once more mobilised. It captured Guchlug's camp before confronting and defeating Guchlug and Togtogebeki's army on the banks of the Irtish River. Once again, the discipline and tactics of the Mongol army overwhelmed the opponents, forcing them to retreat. However, the only place they could retreat was to the Irtish River, which was swollen and turbulent with meltwater. Many desperate tribesmen drowned as they tried to escape the Mongol killing machine. But it was here, on the banks of the Irtish, that Toktogebeki's luck finally ran out. He was struck from his horse by an arrow, and died where he fell. As the battle devolved into a rout, there was no time for the Merkit leader to be buried. Instead, his sons cut off his head and took it with them to honour at a later point. They then crossed the Irtish, and with a few remaining Merkit survivors, headed west. With no help coming from his uncle, Guchlug also took an opportunity to escape to the west, where we shall encounter him again in a not-too-distant future. Despite finally getting revenge over Togtogebeki, Temujin was not happy that his sons were still on the run. In what would be a precursor to the Great Westward campaigns, he ordered Subutai and Jockey to prepare to hunt them down. Quote, I am sending you off to war now, because in my youth the three murkid chiefs frightened me. They chased me three times around Burkhan Kuldun. Now these hateful people have tried to run away from me. Follow them to the ends of the earth. Find them at the bottom of the sea. End quote. 
So with the defeat of Gutschlug and Togtogebeki, we really draw to a close the first phase of the history of the Mongol Empire. We have seen Temujin rise from obscurity and incredible hardship to become the leader of all the tribes on the Mongolian steppe. Behind him lay the shattered remains of those who tried to resist him. Half of the Nayman nation, the Tatar, the Karaid, the Merkit, and the Mongol nobles who wanted to retain power for themselves. There was one final loose end to tie up. Jamuga. The one time Anda and Gurkhan had been on the run since abandoning Taiyang Khan in the Orkhon Valley. He now had few followers, and was very quickly alienating those by constantly boasting and joking. Eventually, they grew sick of his shtick, bound him and took him to Temujin. Arriving at the Mongol camp, Jamuga turned on his followers. Quote, Tell my Ander the Khan, black crows have captured a beautiful duck. Peasants and slaves have laid their hands on their lord. My Ander the Khan will see this and know what to do. End quote. And Temujin knew exactly how to treat men who betrayed their Khan, and all of Jamuga's followers were beheaded in sight of their leader. Once that task was complete, Temujin had to deal with Jamuga himself. Rashid al-Din states quite dispassionately that, having previously called him Ander, Temujin was reluctant to kill Jamuga. He passed him to his nephew, El-Jigadai, who would be responsible for his well-being, whatever that meant. El-Jigadai had far fewer reservations about killing the former Jadaran leader, and after a few days of captivity, ordered him to be cut limb from limb. Jamuga apparently took this death very cheerfully, holding his joints out for his executioner, and saying that El-Jigadai was correct to be executing him in this way. The secret history, though, gives him a far more romantic and regal death. As in Rashid, Temujin comes across as unsure about whether Jamuga should be executed, the weight of the responsibility of Ander bearing heavily upon him. Quote, Now we two are together. Let's be allies. Once we move together like the two shafts of a cart, but you thought about separating from me and you left. Now that we're together again in one place, Let's each be the one to remind the other of what he forgot. Let's each be the one to awaken the other's judgment whenever it sleeps. Though you left me, you were always my Ander. End quote. Temujin then goes on to highlight the good deeds that Jamuga had done for him since they'd split. But for the first time, Jamuga silences his Ander by being completely honest. He frames his death as being necessary for the survival of Temujin's nascent Mongol nation. Quote, Long ago, when we were children in the Korkonag Valley, I declared myself to be your Ander. Together we ate the food which is never digested, and spoke words to each other which are never forgotten, and at night we shared one blanket to cover us both. Then it was as if people came between us with knives, slashing our legs and stabbing our sides, and we were separated from each other. I thought to myself, We've made solemn promises to each other, and my face was so blackened by the winds of shame that I couldn't bring myself to show my face, this shameful wind-burned face, before the warm face of my Ander the Khan. I thought to myself, we've spoken words to each other that are never forgotten, and my face was so red from the heat of my shame that I went far away from you, unable to show this burned, peeling face before the clear face of my Ander whose memory is long. 
And now Myanda, the Khan, wants to favour me, and says to me, let's be allies. When I should have been his ally, I deserted him. Now, Myanda, you've pacified every nation. You've united every tribe in the world. The great Khan's throne has given itself to you. Now that the world is ready for you, what good would I be as your ally? I'd only invade your dreams in the dark of night and trouble your thoughts in the day. I'd be like a louse on your collar, like a thorn under your shirt. Myanda, if you want to favour me, then let me die quickly and you'll be at peace with your heart. When you have me killed, Myanda, see that it's done without shedding my blood. Once I am dead and my bones have been buried high on a cliff, I will become a prayer to protect you. I've been crushed by my Anders' generosity and greatness. Remember these words that I've spoken, and repeat them to each other morning and night. Now let me die quickly. End quote. And it is with great reluctance that Temujin carries out the wishes of his Ander. Jamuga is executed without any blood being shed, and his bones were then treated with all the honour due to an important tribal leader. With Jamuga's death concludes the transfer of noble power from the clans to Temujin himself, and from now on all honour, prestige and status would come directly from the Khan. Temujin was Lord of the Steppe. Don't forget, mongolempirepodcast.com has all the maps, bibliographies, and biographies. Also, links to the resources found on silkroadfoundation.org. If you do want to get in contact with the show, drop me an email at cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or you can find me on Twitter at mongolempirepod. Thanks for listening to The Rise of Temujin. I will be back with you very soon for the next phase of the Mongol Empire podcast. But for now, let us close the series by recounting Temujin's elevation to Chinggis Khan. Here is the secret history to play us out. And so, in the year of the tiger, having set in order the lives of all the people whose tents are protected by skirts of felt, the Mongol clans assembled at the head of the Onan. They raised a white standard of nine tails and proclaimed Chinggis Khan the Great Khan.